Well, previously on sermons at Rocky Bayou Baptist Church, Pastor Troy preached a powerful message on John 15 that identified Jesus as the true vine, believers as the branches sprouting from the vine, and the Father as the vine dresser. The vine dresser cuts all the branches, and this is where the drama comes in. Some he cuts to prune to produce more fruit, but some he cuts all the way back at the stem because they're dead. So the question is, is the cutting in my life the cutting of pruning for my good or the cutting of separation? That should have challenged you to introspection, hitting you square between the eyes like the bacon asteroid from Troy's mouth. (laughs) Am I connected to Jesus? Am I a branch attached to his vine with his life flowing through me, or am I pretending in my own strength. Now, there is so much truth in John 15, verses 4 through 6, when considering this question. It reads, abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. How do you answer that question? Am I connected to Jesus? Jesus helps the disciples answer that question as he keeps talking with them in John 15. So one author helpfully put it, in 1512, the subject shifts to the character of life among Jesus' followers. Having described the life-giving vine and our need to share in his life and his love in order to live, that's verses 1 through 11, Jesus moves on to describe life among the branches. Pastor Troy, toward the end of his sermon, shifted our scope last week, stole all my thunder in the process. He said, you are not the only branch on the vine. The health of your connection to the vine is evidenced by how you treat the other branches near you. So let me quote Troy from last week. He said, true love for brothers and sisters is the fruit of a true branch that is abiding in the vine. And then he closed his sermon with a cliffhanger. So again, he closed his sermon with this quote. If you, in your Christian life, in your experience with his church, if you see a dying branch, what are you going to do about it? So what you do about it, something or nothing, indicates your connection to the vine or lack thereof. 
But this question, what are you going to do if you see a dying branch, assumes that you're in close relationships with other branches that would allow you this awareness in the first place and allow you the opportunity to do something about it. So let me be frank. If you're a branch on Jesus's vine, you must be in close relationships with other believers. And then you must act upon noticing areas of regression or sin in their lives. A true branch connected to the true vine would respond according to verses 12 and 17, which sandwich our passage this morning. Verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And then verse 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another. So just as the focus shifts from the individual to the group, so does the metaphor. The vine goes away in Jesus' teaching and it's replaced by friendship. Notice friends in verses 13 and 14. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. So Jesus calls his people friends, and that friendship that Jesus has with us is the foundation for the command that we love one another. So on your listening guide, let's first connect the metaphors, your first blanks. Branches connected to the vine equals friends of Jesus. So as Jesus shifts to teaching about our relationships with one another, the horticulture metaphor of vines and branches is replaced with personal friendship. Verse 13 describes that the greatest love is illustrated when someone lays down his life, a sacrifice to the point of death for someone else. And that's exactly what Jesus has done. As he speaks here, he will soon go and die on the cross. And it's actually for his enemies that he does it. Those who have sinned against him, yet his sacrifice, death, and resurrection provide the means for which his enemies can become his friends. D.A. Carson wrote in his John commentary, guilty sinners can find no better and truer friend than in, God, in the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and in, and in the Son whom he has sent. So here in John 15, Jesus tells his disciples what he's about to do. He's a man who's going to die for his friends. And this sacrifice provides the standard for the command in how we should treat one another. We should love one another. Our love for one another should resemble the love of our master that he has for us. So notice that Jesus says in verse 12, love one another as I have loved you. So number one, friends of Jesus love one another. 
So this morning, we're actually going to review five characteristics that friends of Jesus possess. Or to reference the metaphor from last week, these five characteristics are true of those branches connected to the true vine. And these five things I pulled from John MacArthur, who pulled them straight from John 15 in a Bible study he wrote almost 40 years ago. So I cite my source to you. But we'll spend most of our time on the first one, and then we'll quickly highlight the other four. So friends of Jesus love one another. 1 John 3.16 reads, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. A couple of verses after this, John writes that this love should be expressed through our actions. Jesus has proved his love for us through his actions. So we too should love others to the point of dying for them. John doesn't expect that we would love to the same dimension that Jesus loves us. We aren't Jesus. We're not, we can't substitute ourselves and bring salvation and forgiveness of sins to others by death. But he is expecting our loving actions to have a sacrificial nature to them, like Jesus was first sacrificial for us. Selfishness is the opposite of loving one another. You can only be sacrificial if you're operating in selflessness, not selfishness. You and I are naturally selfish by our sin nature. And then you sprinkle in a little bit more selfish flavor by our American entitlement. And then by us being born in the 20th or the 21st centuries. Every day we wake up, we're already on the wrong track. We're already disciplined to live for ourselves. So we need a new discipline. We need to, when we wake up, die to ourselves, to our desires and dreams, and live for the Lord instead this day because he gave us each day as a gift in the first place. So I recommend starting every day on your knees if you are able to do so. Turn off that alarm, drop to your knees, and then, sh and then pray a short prayer to the Lord. And it could go something like this. Lord, make it my aim today to please you. Or, Lord, help me seek to obey your commands, not follow my heart. Or help me, Lord, to sacrificially love those that you have arranged for me to meet today. The, the prayer doesn't have to be long. But this daily liturgy, if you want to call it, grounds your day in his grace by you physically bowing to his lordship. Our lives should be known by our obedience to the Lord through our love for fellow believers. The relational values of our church practically apply what loving one another should look like. Now, Troy highlighted all 10 of these in his sermon just two weeks ago. He stole my thunder last week, but I'm going to add to his thunder here. So take, for instance, 
this value. Considering others as more important than ourselves, we will view as significant the opinions and contributions of others. And the scripture reference is Philippians 2.3, and it reads, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Nothing. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. So what follows that verse? Just the epitome of humility and dying to self. Jesus is described as emptying himself of his royal position in heaven and becoming a servant by taking on flesh and dying on the cross. Paul writes something very similar in Ephesians 5.21 when he commands that we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So in our relationships with each other, we should all take the lower position sacrificing our preferences for someone else or for the benefit of the whole group. But honestly, how entrenched we are in our self-focused life that we may never even consider that other people have needs besides ourselves, Or we may consider them, but we may go ahead and meet our own first anyway. So if we're operating in this others-centered frame of mind, there would never be any slander in our midst. So what's that? What's slander? It's misrepresenting or damaging the character and reputation of someone else. This is born out of selfishness, actually taking the higher position over other people. Because there's a way to share your opinion or talk about another person without being confrontational and bitter and without presenting your way of thinking as superior. If you're with fellow believers at a church function and you're about to open your mouth because you've got a a bone to pick with so-and-so leader, maybe for not being consulted about a certain decision, even with your level of expertise, and you're about to open your mouth about this leader, to other people and the leader's not even present, I pray that the Holy Spirit would glue your mouth shut. For the health of this church, your disease need not spread. But if the Holy Spirit doesn't glue your lips together and something comes out sounding a little questionable in content or tone, another relational value comes into play. Assuming godly intentions. We will be slow to anger and slow to take offense by assuming the best intentions of every Rocky member from James 1.19. Now this again requires humility and taking the lower position. Now sometimes something is obviously gossip or slander. And if you hear someone tearing down so-and-so without them present, the godliest thing you can do is rebuke them in that moment. Now, take them aside first, of course. That would be the most loving thing to do. Then you confront them about the sin that you just witnessed. But other times, you don't need to respond that way if you're not really sure about something. So instead, you could say something like, I hear you, thank you for sharing that with me, but I think you should go share what you just said with so-and-so leader. 
Now, that's a loving response because you're pointing them to the person they need to talk to. But an even better response would be before they begin their spiel, ask, have you talked to them about this? You don't need to talk to me. Have you talked to them? Because you will not assume godly intentions of the person that you hear potential gossip about if you get caught up in the news that they share. You follow the command to love another by instead pointing someone to the person they need to talk to and you step back out of the situation, never hearing the complaint. Each of us should treat each other with love and respect because as people in this fellowship of believers, we each deserve love and respect because we're in the fellowship. Jesus has brought us in and we've become members, we all have the same rights and responsibilities. Each of us should be for each one of us. We should all root for each one of us to succeed. And if one succeeds, we should all celebrate. So like when you hear of some kid's sports accomplishments or completion of Awana verses, celebrate. Or when you hear someone gaining a promotion at work, or having a baby among us, or getting married, we should all celebrate. But let me be open. I admit, there was a time when it was difficult for me to celebrate with parents having children when we just weren't having them. So that's a practical way that I had to work on my selfishness. I was taking someone else's time of joy and making it about who? Me. So sometimes celebrating with others takes work. Maybe you're single and you don't want to be. Pray that the Lord would help you celebrate the new marriages in our midst. Or maybe you wish you had someone else's fill in the blank. Don't let that fester, but fight it with joy. Because we should be in this together to the point that we all want the best for each one of us individually, and that we all assume the best of each other no matter what we hear. Only later, if other evidence comes out, then sin may need to be dealt with. But that should begin with the few people that witnessed it. We are not the sin police of each other, but we are for each other to put sin to death and obey Jesus more fully. Or what about this relational value? Vulnerability. We will work to be transparent with each other for our good and the good of others. This value, I think, hits on the separation between the church participants and the church attenders. So I'm generalizing, but the church attenders stay on the periphery and never make meaningful connections or relationships with others because they leave as soon as the service is over and then they don't show their face again until next Sunday. Now, that's not to say the vulnerability of those participants is such that every area of sin and suffering is broadcast among all of us equally. But the church participants, in general, are more open and vulnerable with one another in their small group of influence because they show that they need their group 
to walk with Jesus. Those on the periphery come to church services to be blessed. They desire their favorite songs to be played, the welcome team to smile but leave them alone, the sermon to give certain warm and fuzzies. But the church participants come to services seeking to be a blessing to others. Participants notice a new face and they seek to welcome them. Their favorite songs aren't sung that week, and that's okay. They can rejoice that their neighbor is singing a song that they clearly like very much. Participants seek to follow up with someone who shared some difficulty with them the week before, so they're going to take their time this week to follow up and pray for that person. Now, as a result of that, the participant is blessed through him or her seeking to be a blessing to others. This is how we should come to church, not for ourselves, but for the benefit of someone else. Now, about vulnerability and openness, this is essential for discipleship, for growth in Christ to occur in us. So, life group leaders, small group leaders, you should take the lead in what modeling confessing sin looks like. Because your small groups should be safe spaces for sins to be confessed, prayed for, and be held accountable for. So leaders, take the first step of opening. That's a humbling thing. Confess a sin. Ask the group members to follow up with you next time or before next time. Accountability is good. It's being honest that we are all sinners and we're all tempted. Accountability is needed. It's how we support one another. Another value Hospitality. We value being gracious and accommodating to each other from 1 Peter 4.9. Now, it's encouraging for me as one of your pastors to witness groups of people remaining in the sanctuary, talking for a long time, week after week. Now, this is good and healthy. And this could be fostering openness and vulnerability. Now, after service, these groups could be the place where you pray for one another and practice uh, accountability. Now, if you stay after service for openness and vulnerability, amen. But if you're standing around after service, and it's not for openness and vulnerability, this time may benefit you But it may not be the best use of your time for the church if you consider taking the lower position to benefit someone else. Here's what I mean. Some of you may just be comfortable. You stand and chat, maybe with the same people after service that you do at Rocky Family Night. You stay and chat with the same people that you sat next to in Adult Bible Fellowship this morning. And these same people you plan to see tonight at Life Group. If you're not chatting for vulnerability or for accountability's sake, plan to talk to your friends at Life Group later and go be friendly to someone new. If I may be so bold, 
This next part is the time for participation, if you would please indulge me. There's just one question. I don't think it's hard, but please raise your hand if it applies to you. So here it is. Raise your hand if you've been attending this church or participating this, with this church for less than two years. Less than two years. That applies to me. I've been here less than two years, so keep them up. Hold them a little higher. Whether you are a member or an attender for less than two years. A little bit higher, okay. Now, look, keep them up. Look around. Maybe I have the best view of this, but the Lord has brought so many to us in the last two years. You can put your hands down. For those who had your hands down the whole time, who've been here longer than two years, you're the Rocky Bayou Baptist welcome team. What grade have you earned? Have you led a guest to where they need to drop their kids off? Have you taken a seat in adult Bible fellowship by people you don't know their names? Have you practiced hospitality by inviting someone to a meal in your home? Have you invited that neighbor that you know attends here to your life group? You may think that the official welcome team with the lanyards can do that or the elders can do that, but the number of hands in the air proves that this has got to be a team effort. Showing hospitality to all of us when it's not easy or convenient, is obeying the command to love one another. So last one I'll highlight. Unity and peace. We will strive to pray for the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, Ephesians 4.3. Our church will only be unified if each member considers one another above themselves. Our vision is to know him and to make him known. So to think about the four brothers coming, finishing the Atlantic Row yesterday, to achieve this vision of knowing him and making him known, all of our oars need to be in the water, rowing together in the same direction. So if the Holy Spirit brings to your remembrance any instance in which you cause division, ask for forgiveness, go make it right even after the service today. If a past sin that you repented of comes to your mind, that's not the Holy Spirit. So take the thought captive and move on. And if you're the person that was offended, pray that you can move on. Pray for the unity of our church. So in summary, look at verse 10. Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. The commandments that must be obeyed for a disciple to abide in his love are then boiled down to one command in verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. So in fact, 
Let's take the love one another, the single command from verse 12, and put it into verse 10. So with that one command from verse 12, verse 10 would read this. If you love one another, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and I abide in his love. Your obedience or disobedience to the Father's, or your obedience or disobedience to this command shows its power to reveal your heart. Carson writes again so helpfully, genuine love for God ensures genuine love for the Son. He continues, genuine love for the Son ensures obedience to Him. That obedience to him is especially tested by obedience to the new commandment, the command to love. By an unbreakable chain, love for God is tied to and verified by love for other believers. End quote. So as John writes in 1 John 4, 19 through 21, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So church, let's make love our defining feature. These five core values I think practically explain how we can love one another in the same sacrificial manner that our Lord loved us. Friends of Jesus love one another. And second, friends of Jesus know divine truth. Verse 15, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I called you friends. For everything I heard from my Father, I made known to you. This is beautiful. Jesus does not think of his people as servants because servants are mistreated beasts of burden who are demanded to obey. But to Jesus, his people are friends. He's keeping no secrets. Everything he heard from the Father is ours to share. He's fully informed us of his thinking. We enjoy his confidence and we can learn to obey with joy because we know that our master's heart is for our good. Now we each individually know divine truth, but we should remind our fellow brothers and sisters of that truth. My knowledge of the Bible is not just to bless me. Your knowledge of the Bible is not just to bless you. What if the Lord has given you the knowledge and study of his word so that you can keep a fellow brother or sister in the faith by confronting them in their sin? To quote Pastor Troy from last week, who quoted me, so in a weird way I'm quoting myself, The seriousness of the moment is totally gone. Um, But the point is, if someone is telling you the truth, it is less likely that you will be cut off. 
being in a close discipleship relationship with someone and giving that person the opportunity to speak divine truth to you may be the gracious mechanism that God uses to keep you connected to the vine, making it far less likely that you will be cut off and be revealed that you were a dead branch the whole time. All of us need accountability. None of us are beyond sinning in such a way that could ruin our lives. None of us are beyond developing sin patterns that will deaden your conscience and result in you falling away from the faith. Do you have friends, I mean real friends, that will tell you the truth? Number three, friends of Jesus are chosen and appointed. Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. And we'll stop there. Before you get too excited and brag that Jesus, that you got to get Jesus to be your friend, Jesus initiates the relationship. Jesus is referring to salvation here because if we looked ahead to verse 19, he describes choosing people out of the world. Jesus chose you, then appointed you. Because the Greek Verb for appointed is used elsewhere to mean appointing someone to a task or ministry. And what is that ministry? Number four, friends of Jesus bear fruit. Let's continue in verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So on this verse, the ESV study Bible comments that the purpose of Christ choosing people is not merely that their sins would be forgiven and that they have eternal life, but it says that their lives would be fruitful and productive in fulfilling God's purposes. Fruit was a repeated feature of the vine and branches metaphor from last week But now Jesus slightly clarifies what fruit he expects from his friends with these words in verse 16, that you should go and bear fruit. Friends should not remain in the huddle. Friends should leave the safety of the nest. The Lord is bringing people to our church from around the country that are believers already, and we saw that with the raising of hands. Great. The Lord has sent out many from among us to go around the world to tell people about Jesus. Excellent, may he send more. But those sent ones from our church can't check the appointed and bearing fruit boxes for us. The Lord's desire is to save new people in this community too. And we, as church leaders, need to provide you with more opportunities to do ministry here locally. So I admit it, but let me preview one opportunity that I'm excited about. Mark your calendars for April 13th. That's a Saturday. Our church is partnering with Church on Bayshore, just up the street, for what they call Serve Day. 
Teams of people from our churches will be sent around the community, and each team will have a specific project to complete. So these projects are designed to bless our community. There are some manual labor projects, there are some handyman projects, there are some kid-friendly projects. Like my son and I joined Bayshore's Serve Day back in September, so we've got experience in this. And we visited residents at the manor and we chatted with them, and pizza natural at that. And then we went to Brookdale and we helped serve lunch to the residents and we spent time with Kathy and Terry Pretty for a while. So these projects will give you opportunities to connect and talk with people. So that's April 13th with Church on Bayshore. Now you may think, that's a great idea, but why are we doing this with that church? So the answer is, they invited us. Why don't we go do our own serve day? We could, and I'm sure we would do some good. But there's a better option. We will do more good around the community by joining, it, by joining with them, but even more important than the number of projects that we could do together, even more important than the number of people sent out together, consider the message of two churches partnering together not to advance either of our brand names, but to work together to advance the name of Jesus. That's a message that both of our churches want to communicate to our community. So join us Saturday morning, April 13th. More details to come. Friends of Jesus bear fruit as they share the love of Jesus they have come to know. So going forward, we will seek to provide our church with more opportunities to go and bear fruit locally. Carson writes... The union of love that joins believers with Jesus can never become a comfortable, exclusivistic huddle that only they can share, end quote. And my comment is, if it does become comfortable or exclusive, we've lost our first love and we've replaced it with an idol of comfort and ease. So may we go and bear fruit out of love. And number five, friends of Jesus have their prayers answered. These characteristics form a chain. Jesus revealed divine truth to us, that he chose us and he appointed us now to bear fruit for him. The means of this evangelistic fruit bearing is prayer in Jesus' name. So let's finish verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Jesus is almost daring us. Don't hold anything back in prayer. Think bigger than what you're thinking and pray that. There's a bold promise here. I'm not going to explain it away. Take Jesus at his word. Pray that certain fruit would finally sprout in saving faith. Pray that someone who finally bore a little bit of fruit would bear more fruit. The Father will give it to you. 
And now we're back to how we began, verse 17. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Friends of Jesus know divine truth. They're chosen and appointed. They bear fruit and they have their prayers answered. But it's all void without love for one another. Now to set up Pastor Bill next week. Friends of Jesus love one another. But are you seeking to love the world as well? Let's pray. Lord, we pause and we look to you. Um, There is so much application that I fall short of in this message. And yet I was appointed to give it. So Jesus, I and we do not measure up to loving one another in the way and quality that you would have for us. But I humbly ask that you would help us to bring to our attention, I pray, the, the areas and patterns of sin that we may have. Help us instead Father, to address those specifically in the power of the Spirit. Help us to love one another just as you have first loved us. I pray, we need your help, but I pray, God, that our church would be known in our community when they think of our church, they think those people there They love one another. Do that in us, I pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.